You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Jack Farley with Real Vision, and I'm here with Teddy Vallee of Pear Valley Global, a global macro fund. Uh, they invest, Teddy, it's my understanding, you invest in commodities, uh, currencies, equities, even Bitcoin. Um, so everything, you're, you're very pan-asset, right? Exactly, 100%. We're expanding more to in the crypto space with individual coins. Great. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that you can join us, Teddy. Um, I actually, it's great when we can get someone who can invest um, in so many assets, because that way, uh, you know, I have a, I have a ton of questions that you can uh, answer. I know Bitcoin. Um, you were very early in that space, and obviously that's on a tear. So I want to get um, your views on that. But I know that you also have um, strong thesis um, on the dollar, as well as uh, tech like growth versus value um, within um, equities. So l- let's start with the dollar. What's your view on that? Yeah, I think the dollar overall is interesting. Long term, I'm very dollar bearish. I think the the structural sort of things that we have going on in the U.S. Uh, for returns for the U.S. versus the rest of the world favor the rest of the world. Therefore, a lot of capital is going to leave the U.S. and and find higher returns elsewhere. Right now, though, I think we're in this situation where everybody's negative on the dollar. Um, not only negative on the dollar, but they're also max long um, equities uh, to an extent. Uh, I mean, from a prime broker standpoint. You know the Goldman Sachs net hedge fund net uh, percentage long is in is ninety seven percentile ninety eight percentile. Um, so right now with the dollar, everyone is positioned for it to effectively be weaker. Whether that's in the dollar within commodities, max long sort of cyclical commodities, max long cyclical currencies, and when you have positioning sort of set up like this, it, it typically it typically leads to an unwind before you can actually have a, a stronger move lower. Because if everyone has the view that the dollar is going to go lower then everyone is already positioned and sort of has that trade on. So it makes it less likely. The key thing that I think with the dollar that we're a little bit worried about is liquidity. So one of the things we track and build out is um, these liquidity models that lead certain asset classes. And one of the, and the one specifically that, that, that leads the dollar is this treasury issuance, less um, quantitative easing or QE that the, the bond purchases that the Fed's doing. So right now we're looking at over the next 120 days. So this model leads uh, the dollar by 120 days, and right now we're coming to this period where it should show dollar strength um, because there's been a significant amount of uh, basically liquidity extracted from the market through these Fed uh, or through the stimulus programs of the U.S. government, um, and the Fed is not covering or buying enough of those bonds to effectively fill the gap. So if there's only call it 100 dollars in the system. And the, the U.S. government says, look, guys, we need 20 bucks. That 20 bucks needs to come from somewhere in that $100 if the Fed is not buying. Um, and we have found that that is very liquidity negative and affects the dollars. The dollar primarily more of the developed market currency pairs like the euro, for example. So with this liquidity backdrop, um, everyone very negative on the dollar, everyone positioned for the dollar to continue continue to go lower, it seems the probabilities favor um, a balance of the dollar, um, which I think will lead to probably precious metals unwind, which you're sort of seeing right now. Um, we've been very bullish on gold and gold miners up to three or four months ago, where we saw this real rate, um, real rates effectively moving higher, one, because of break-even sort of coming in, two, because nominals could potentially rise. Um, but I think the probabilities right now are in favor a higher dollar. Um, that being said, if we see a breakdown through the lows, I think that that view is likely wrong, and then you just need to reevaluate. So as long as we hold the most recent lows in the dollar, I think the bias is is to the upside. Interesting. And that's how. What's your time frame on that? Like one to two years? Uh, two to three months. I'd okay. Say okay. Through, two to three months. So much yeah, more. I would say through so, the first quarter of next year. Okay. So yeah, this long is term, a much you're bearish. more tactical. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, I want to dive into this uh, chart that you have of the cumulative QE um, minus the Treasury issuance relative to the dollar. Can you just explain the dynamics and sort of, you know, what's uh, what's on the right side of the tr- uh, what's on the 
right side of the chart and what's on the left side of the chart in terms of like the denominations? Uh, so year on year, though, I can tell you, I think is on the right hand side. So the dollar year on year, so the percentage, you know, that it's rising or falling over the prior year. And then the left side is effectively the amount of um, treasury issuance that the, the, the treasury is doing versus the amount of bonds the, the Fed is buying. So we accumulate that over time. So, you know, if it, for example, in one month, if it's a hundred dollars uh, of net treasury issuance greater than QE, that'd be a hundred dollars. The next month is fifty dollars um, net uh, positive. So that effectively um, over time, and then take the year on year of that. So you're looking at the relative changes um, and rate of change of these liquidity profiles, not necessarily the absolute level, um, which we found is um, is a pretty good. Uh, lead of, of the dollar and, and liquidity overall. Interesting. I, I find that to be such an interesting chart. And just so um, the blue line is that QE minus the treasury issuance, um, and it's yes, denominated exactly. negative. So the higher it goes, that means the the more treasury issuance there is relative to QE. Because correct treasury exactly. issuance, when they when they issue a bond or a bill, uh, primary dealers have to buy that. So they suck, that sucks cash out of the system. Whereas when the Fed buys uh, bonds from the Treasury or, or from primary dealers, they inject cash into the system. And I was really fascinated by this chart, Teddy, because I, like so many, including probably some of the viewers, have been heard, heard this narrative that the Fed has injected unprecedented liquidity into the market. But you're saying, sure, they have, but uh, relative to the amount of Treasury issuance there have been, it's actually liquidity net negative. Is that what you're saying? Correct. So the way the, the mechanism of sort of the timing there is when the Fed does come in with those programs, the positive, so the positive amount of, so for example, early this year, the positive liquidity effect of that was unbelievable because the, the QE relative to how much they were issuing was incredible, like 500 billion in excess, QE in excess of the issuance. We are now financing a lot of one, the deficits and two, some of the, in, in the stimulus programs, which then you know, then, so while it was liquidity positive, now we're paying it back effectively mm. and having to pull that money from the market to, to finance, you know, these stimulus projects. And this is, we'll touch on, we can touch on this a little bit later, but I think this is this concept and how this, um, the dynamics of this are extremely important for the next, I think, 10 years, because this is, you're effectively taking money out of the market via treasury issuance to then give to, you know, either infrastructure, either stimulus payments. And I think you, we might have one more sort of round of positive monetary policy in terms of rates coming down, being positive for growth. But after that, you're sort of on the lower end and you don't really, you don't have much room to go on the monetary side. Therefore, fiscal becomes the new monetary policy. And if you have to finance everything via the treasury market, liquidity negative, to then give out and push out to consumers, to businesses, et cetera, that's mm -hmm. growth positive, liquidity negative. Therefore, that's commodity positive, financial asset negative. So we're creating this feedback loop or with the beginning of this feedback loop that over a longer term period significantly favors commodities, hard assets over um, financial assets, particularly U.S. tech, which I'm not, not, very, um, not very keen on. Yeah, let, let's talk about tech. What's what's your base case? You know, over this year we've seen tech explode higher um, as uh, lockdowns have happened. People have been, um, you know, been working from home. They haven't been going to stores. They've been ordering online. They've been using Zoom. You and I are using mm -hmm. Zoom right now. Um, that's obviously been a very good uh, environment for tech. Um, what's mm -hmm. your view on tech going forward? And you know, I think I sort of portrayed it. The way that you would see it, sort of on CNBC, in terms of it, it's a very clear narrative. But I think you have a more nuanced view about um, where tech is relative to the dollar. So just, just tell me your view. Yeah. So I think overall, this the the so the, let's start at the beginning. The, the the liquidity that came into the market was unprecedented, and that led to the dollar going lower. Um, and as the dollar went lower, that really ripped break evens. So real rates, given that nominals didn't move, because the overall growth backdrop was still very poor. Real rates went through the went through the floor because break evens, inflation expectations rose off of a lower dollar. That led to over a hundred percent increase in the market because the multiple of the market, primarily technology, rose. It was it was the whole factor of the gain um, from the March lows, not necessarily well, not at all from earnings growth. It's all multiple driven. 
which was due to lower real rates. So we have a chart, um, which I'll send to you, which you may even have, um, yeah, that shows real rates versus, versus you know, the S&P multiples. So the, the growth that we've had, the, the appreciation that we've had has primarily been from one liquidity and two lower um, real rates. Both of those factors that drove tech, I think now are fading. Um, and as a percentage of the the total, and I can get into that in a second, and the, uh, it's a percentage of the total market cap, tech's about now $11 trillion and about 31% of the total market. Um, if you look at some of these other sectors, you know, energy, for example, it's up a decent amount over the past few weeks. But at the time that we were, the report that you're referencing that we sent out last month, it was about 600 billion. So if you get any flow from tech, which is 11 trillion to a 600 billion market cap, um, you know, the moves are, are huge. And this is sort of what we're outlining in that piece. And then, you know, we got the vaccine news and, and energy has had some serious moves because everyone's underweighted. Everyone's overweight tech, but as it relates to tech, I I think the, the the probabilities are that real rates are going to go higher, and if real rates go higher, you do not want to own these growthy names. Um, now I can get into why I think real rates are going to go higher, but tech, I think everyone's overexposed to it. It reminds me a lot of two thousand in the sense that um, everyone's long it. It's the exact same percentage of the market cap. Um, everyone's raving about it. How you know we're all going to work from home forever. Um, to me, the things that were positive for the space overall, um, are very negative going forward and will continue to go, continue to be negative going forward. And I think it becomes a funding, a funding, um, not currency, but funding source, um, to pair against other sort of cyclical sectors, but also parts of the world. Um, and there's been so much capital that has come into it over the past 10 years because the growth profiles have been horrible. There's been really, you know, nowhere else to put your money. For example, Tina, there's no alternative. And I yep. think the, that I think that situation is changing and we're coming into an environment that looks much different. Teddy, okay, that's so interesting. Um, can we uh, dive into it a little bit on why uh, low real rates are good for tech? Yes, absolutely. So effectively, when you have a lower real rate, um, that in a sense is liquidity positive, but it also means that Lower real rates mean that the growth profiles of the economy are very poor. Higher real rates uh, means that nominals are growing in excess of the inflation expectations, which is which is positive sort of cyclicality. So as real rates go lower, that means that investors uh, effectively do not have the same rate of return um, or a lower rate of return on on sort of the cost of money. Therefore, they are more willing to pay up for something that actually has growth when the growth backdrop is very negative. Hence why you've seen this, this monster influx into tech and why tech is doing so well. The growth backdrop's been poor, real rates have gone down, uh, break-evens have gone up primarily because of liquidity. I think that's changing in terms of sort of the driver of the break-even itself. Yeah, but, and, and, and Teddy, Teddy, sorry to interrupt. Yes, please. So can you tell, can you tell people what a break-even is? It's, it's effectively the market's view of what inflation is going to be over a certain time period. So 10-year break-evens is what the market's expecting uh, the future uh, inflation gauge to be um, 10 years from now. Um, so it's it's the market's way of deriving where, call it CPI is, which I don't love. Um, I think it's always important to focus on the break-even market because at the end of the day, this which is derived from the TIPS market, which is... Uh, treasury inflation protected securities. Mm-hmm. So you buy one of those, you don't have to worry about inflation. You're just effectively um, owning the, the, you're getting the real interest rate. Um, now going forward, I think that we could get into a little bit about why I think this, this dynamic changes, um, which ultimately affects tech. But the reason everyone's been in this is because it's been Going straight lower, and um, that makes the multiples or the earnings of tech significantly higher because there's some growth there, or there's more growth. You know, in some stocks there's no growth, but there's more growth than than the more cyclical elements of of the market. Right. Um, that's so interesting. I think you make the point um, that investors are willing to pay more for growth in a low growth environment um, because because rates are so low. I think um, the this another way of looking at it is that 
you know, in the discount dividend model, when equity investors buy a stock, they're paying for the future cash flows, and then they discount that um, relative back, back to the future um, relative to a discount rate. And if that rate is low, um, that the terminal value of that company um, just can increase. Um, and exactly. if, if rates go zero or even negative, I mean, theoretically, the value would be infinite. Obviously, that's just um, the theoretical. Um, yes. I, I want to get your view on um, tech going forward. So you, you yes. think that, t- tell me about why you think real rates are going to increase and how that will um, you know, exert pressure on tech. Yes. So there's two things that I think are dri- going to drive real rates here. One, if the dollar rises and we're sort of correct in that view, um, because of this liquidity backdrop and positioning, uh, your break-evens are likely going to come lower because break-evens are very, very commodity sensitive. So as the dollar goes higher, commodities go lower and break-evens go lower. Um, so if the view is correct or if the assumption is correct that the dollar goes higher, break-evens likely come lower. And here's nominal rates. I don't know if I can do this with my hands to make it easy, but as break-evens come lower, um, that means that real rates rise. Um, and if real rates rise, it unwinds this whole sort of concept that we were talking about previously with multiples in you know DCFs. Um, and the reason, so from a break-even standpoint, there's a potential for real rates to rise. However, from an actual growth standpoint, we focus a lot on leading indicators and what the economy is going to do over the next 12 months. All of our leading indicators and a lot of our real-time models are showing that the economy is, is absolutely improving and moving in the right direction. Um, now, COVID could throw a little wrench in that if you have a second wave, more shutdowns. Um, but from a pure sort of cycle basis, um, outside of that, things are improving. Things look pretty good um, after we get through this liquidity period. Under that assumption, I think real rates really move. I think nominal rates could go much higher. I'm not much higher. I mean, I think they could go to one and a half percent probably in the next six to nine months um, if we get after we get through this liquidity period um and then nominal rates the, is that would that be in like the 10 year or the 10 year i think, term, I think the 10 year could go i think the bias for the 10 year from now is higher um or the risk reward profile of bonds is likely lower um after we get through this little liquidity period this little liquidity period is next three to four months or caught through in the first the first quarter is, is making things a little little difficult but you know, if you recall back, we in October, when I launched the firm in October of 2018, our first piece that we put out was called Bonds and Chill. And rates at the time were 3318312 around there. And we said, look, we think rates are going to go 100 to 200 basis points lower. All of our leading indicators are straight lower. Um, it's a pretty dismal backdrop. You want to be long bonds. I think that thesis has played its course. And now we're sort of on the other side with the leads turning higher. Some of the markets are starting to confirm this. Uh, we have this real-time PMI model, which is like um, 35 different ratios of the internals of the market. And it's got an unbelievable correlation with the global uh, PMI. It's it's very much higher. So we're the, the cyclical elements of the market are, are turning um, and looking much better. And I think that likely continues um, through 2021, which means nominal rates go higher. Under the assumption nominal rates go higher, I think real rates will go higher. And you could have a situation where multiples get cut by 20 to 30%. Now, why do I think tech is going to have a difficult time? Well, if you, even if you have, even if you assume, or equities in general. So here's the thing 70% of the US market cap is tied up in tech, equities, and defensive sort of lower real rate bets. So that's utilities, staples telcos, and healthcare. So if you have $24 trillion uh, or 70% of the market tied up in these lower real rate bets, and I'm saying the probabilities favor higher real rates from two angles, one from an economic growth slowdown or two from an economic growth pickup, those assets, the multiples of those assets get re-rated. So even if you have a growth pickup, the equity market as a headline basis might not move anywhere and actually might go lower. I was just because thinking about Penny. Yeah, I, yeah. That's, because that's, there's this there's this unwind, and then another sort of way to think about it is financial conditions right now. If you look at you know PEs versus uh, financial conditions, price to EBITDA, price to sales, price to book, price to book is probably the highest correlation. Price to book relative to fin conditions is 
just phenomenal uh, correlation over the past two, three years. You can't really go much lower. Their fin- financial conditions are at all-time low. You can't go much lower than they're currently at. So in terms of a multiple perspective, you, you've, you've basically taken all the ju- – you've, you've pulled all the juice forward. Now, hmm. the, the counter to that would be, okay, well, we're going to have earnings pick up. Fair. However, if we assume Acqui or the global stock market earnings are at the highest level at $34 per share, they never COVID never happened. They were $34. And next year, um, from the high, they grow 20%. If I'm right on real rates and earnings still grow 20%, the market trades flat. So it shows you the 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 potential difficulties we have here as a, from a headline basis, from a passive basis, which plays into some of my longer-term thinking. However, there's going to be huge rotations within the market, within the parts of the world. For example, we're starting to see an energy, which I'm pretty keen on over the next, uh, I don't know, from this level, but we were keen on it. We were writing um, writing our, our monthly note last, uh, our institutional monthly note last month. Um, sectors of the market and areas of the world, called Latin America, that look very interesting relative to the U.S., which I think trades flat. Uh, to down um, over the next short, medium, and short, medium, and intermit, uh, short, medium, and long term, call it um, time frame. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. That's interesting. I, I want to get, you know, we have your view now. I want to get into how you trade it. Um, I, I was going to ask you um, about sort of which companies you select, but because you mentioned geog- geography, that you um, prefer companies in Latin America, tell me about that. Why is that the case? Um, is it because of the emerging market currencies that make it a favorable thing? Or mm-hmm. um, is it more uh, more macroeconomic? Yeah, so I want to make sure time frame, right? So just, just to preface this, it's long-term view that these things are going to do very well. Short-term, we might have some hiccups sort of with this liquidity backdrop that, I'm, that, I'm, um, that I presented. So long-term, I think I talked a little bit about that the new age of monetary policy, whereby you're pulling cash out of the market via treasury issuance to hand out via stimulus. That's very commodity positive. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also probably dollar negative longer term. So if you have the dollar going lower and you have commodities going higher, that's extremely beneficial to Latin America, where you know Brazil, for example, is a huge uh, commodity producer, um, Chile. Um, so to me, the areas of the world that have been beaten up uh, due to cyclicality and due to a stronger dollar, emerging markets, Latin America primarily, are the ones that are going to have very high annualized returns over the next two, three, five, ten years. So we have a few models that that break down longer term valuation, um, call it price to ten year earnings stream, price to ten year sales, and the four returns for emerging markets. Um, emerging markets in Latin America are all 10 to 10 to 12 percent per year for the next 10 years. While the US is going to be negative um, for the next for the next 10 years because we've had such an appreciation of the markets relative to the earnings stream, but also you know positioning in the US is like as a percentage of household assets, equities are a huge percentage, which typically leads to four negative four returns. So these profiles um, favor the rest of the world over the long term, particularly the more commodity dollar sensitive um, areas of the world. Right. Yeah. Uh, Your call that the returns of U.S. equities over the next uh, 10 years will be uh, zero or negative is very Mm -hmm. bold. And yeah, there's a there's a chart of the Wilshire 500 market cap to total assets uh, versus forward 10 year returns uh, that you Mm -hmm. sent me the the two lines um, map on each other. Um, very, very closely. I think also just one chart that comes to mind is just the massive uh, outperformance of U.S. equities uh, relative to not just emerging markets, but but um, yeah, equities, uh, European equities. Are you a believer yeah. in uh, mean reversion in the long term in terms of like if some things can't go on forever? Um, yeah, I think if the facts, if the factors that drove it change, then absolutely. Um, and I think you know, there's been 
a large part of this has been sort of the dollar uh, and the dollar appreciating over this period of time. And I think you're, I think we're now starting to see uh, a scenario where, where the dollar could, could, could go much lower over the longer term. Um, and that's definitely going to favor other parts of the world versus the U.S. And, you know, this constant tech bid and the amount of money that's coming into the U.S. is likely going to fade, um, fade going forward. So if you have higher real rates and a lower dollar, that's very, very positive cyclicality and cyclical parts of the world. Um, interesting, you know, the earnings of these emerging markets of Latin America, for example, are flat to, to up and that markets are down from, we'll call it 2009. Um, so from a valuation perspective, on a long-term valuation perspective, valuation means nothing in the short term. On a long-term sort of long, longer time frame, these things are are very much more attractive than, than U.S. assets, which are, you know, max valuations um, on nearly every metric. But of course, that's relative to rates. Um, so because rates are low, you can, you know, you can, you can pay a higher price. However, I'm, I think going forward, that dynamic changes. Um, now, one caveat I want to, I want to put in here is if the Fed does yield curve control, I think that whole thing changes. And I think if there's any hint of yield curve control, one, you want to be long the emerging market space, but two, I think the gold and gold miners, this might be a good little segue into gold. Um, I think are just going to go um, to the moon. Um, if the Fed decides to move forward with yield curve control, which might unfortunately have to be um, sort of the next iteration of, of their monetary policy. I know they've sort of talked about that they don't want to do it. They don't want to blow up the balance sheet. I don't think they really care. Um, but I think that that that's likely, at the end of the day, their goal is to have real rates lower to help the economy sort of function and to sort of hold up asset prices. And if rates are rising on the long end and real rates are rising, then the way to hold to make sure that their overall goal to have that manifest is to effectively do yield curve control. So that's something I'd be on the lookout for that changes effectively that dynamic that I just talked about. Okay, that's that's interesting. Um, you mentioned yield curve control. Could you uh, define what that is and specifically like what actions the Fed does, like what maturities the Fed is sort of targeting? Um, on the U.S. yield curve and how that uh, impacts the asset classes um, that that are within your thesis. Mm -hmm. So what they would do is they would say, look, the 10 years is not going to go above 1%. So even if you have a growth, global growth pickup um, and rates should be rising called to one and a half, two percent 2%, they will buy the 10-year effectively holding um, rates at, at 1%. Um, now what that means is that real rates likely go much lower, way lower because nominals can't rise and break evens are probably picking up as growth is improving. Um, and that means that people can be willing to pay way more for an equity, um, or the, the you know, or the DCFs of an equity are higher. However, what's interesting is I still think tech on a relative basis does poor there. Because if you're willing to pay more for, and then you also have cyclical earnings power, I think a lot of the cyclical, cyclical sectors and areas of the world do well. So tech, even in that scenario, um, I think has, has a difficult time. Right. Okay. That's really interesting. Um, now let's turn to gold and precious metals. Because you mentioned that uh, this environment of um, a weaker dollar um, and uh, yield curve control would be very, very good for gold. We've had quite a run um, in gold. It's been, you know, it burst past the 2000 level. Now it's about hovering um, just about over 1800. Um, what is your view on gold? Can you describe like your base cases, why you find it um, attractive, you know, sort mm -hmm. of in a vacuum? And then, uh, you know, what do you see now on the horizon? How does that shape your outlook? Yeah, so we were, so I came out with Raul in uh, like June of 2019 or something. It was like gold miners versus banks was my favorite trade. Um, and at that time, it seemed that rates were going to go much lower. Real rates were going to go much lower. And the backdrop for gold was phenomenal. That sort of changed over the past called four, four or five months ago where I started thinking about this real rate dynamic and the potential for a you know a economic pickup. 
Um, so right now I'm sort of neutral to negative on gold. I think it's recently it's, it's, it's pulled back a little bit and is, and is, is essentially factoring in or thinking about higher real rates and a, and a, in an improving economy. Um, so right now um, it's also a pretty negative seasonal period. So through the end of the year. Um, so for the time being with liquidity, with my view on real rates, I think it's better to look at different parts of the market, um, different, likely different commodities than gold. Um, I think it's just going to have a, it could, with this backdrop that I just talked about with real rates, I think gold's going to have a, uh, a, a tough time, uh, until the fed comes in and does something, um, crazy, which is basically their job and what they're known to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you, so, um, you mentioned your interview with Rao, um, you know, when, since then, gold has uh, increased, what, 60%, 70%. Um, I actually don't think that has been your best call. Um, it's in Real Vision history. I think your best call was when I interviewed um, you in May um, behind the camera, and you were very bullish at Bitcoin. Mm. Um, I, I don't even know what Bitcoin was at then, but maybe seven, 8,000. Now it's uh, over, uh, it's, more, it's more than doubled um, since then. Uh, so you've been a Bitcoin bull. I think that's fair to say. Is that fair to say? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Oh, what's your view now? Yeah, I'm a little. I'm, I'm sort of neutral now. Um, I think just the, the amount of sentiment and positive sentiment surrounding the space is is uh, is making me a little cautious. I mean, I think long term. I think with Bitcoin, you need to think long term, and I think long term, it's it's going to be much higher. But from a sort of my trader hat and trader mindset, the right now we're going parabolic, meaning the the rate of drawdown or rate of decline on the asset is progressively lower. Um, and we're now at a point where we're effectively just going straight higher. Um, and if that arc breaks, it typically is not, it typically signifies the end of, of a trend and sort of, you know, a consolidation period um, or a new or a new trend. Um, so I think, you know, short to medium term, I'm, I'm sort of, neutral to negative um but then a long term clearly clearly bullish um mm -hmm. i just think it, it's it's had an unbelievable run and it's gotten ahead of itself a lot of positive news um from you know large uh, from paypal from institutions buying it from um paypal allowing individuals to purchase uh bitcoin and you know maybe it goes up 100 percent. that's probably what's going to do now that i said this but um <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know. I, th I think the risk reward is is not amazing, but I don't think it's, it's probably not the best asset to trade. It's more of one to own. Um, so we've paired back a, a good portion. Yeah, I was actually just about to ask um, whether you had been managing your position. Um, do you do you think um, you'll continue to buy um, if it goes down? Like, will you, will you be buying on the dip? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it depends on the dip. Um, Five, ten, probably not. But if you have a a decent dip then absolutely okay interesting um yeah I, I so it sounds like your view on gold and bitcoin is kind of the exact opposite on the, of the dollar on the dollar you're long-term bearish but short-term bullish on gold and bitcoin you are long-term bullish but short-term maybe bearish is a little bit too too, too uh, extreme of a word Neutral. but you're not excited about it short term yeah exactly and i think you i think you nailed it that that dynamic there with the dollar going higher is I don't think is great for either asset class. And I think long-term, the dollar is likely going to go lower, which is very good for both asset classes. Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's so many people in the world talking about Bitcoin and gold. And you know, anytime they have a negative view, I always listen to them. Um, but if there's somebody who sort of has a track record of you know calling people gold bugs and just really being a Bitcoin hater, I think that um, is, you, know, you, you take that with a grain of salt. But for someone mm -hmm. like you, who's been in not only has it been in the space of you know investing in gold and Bitcoin, but it's also you know made a lot of money for it, both for yourself as well as your clients. I think you saying that you're not so bullish on it anymore that that, that says a lot to me. Yeah, you know, we, everyone, uh, even a you know blind squirrel finds nuts, but um, I think you know I think the dynamics of the, the things that drove it and the thesis that we sort of laid out, you know, the facts on that thesis have changed, and when that when those facts and, and the economic backdrop change, I think you need to have sort of adapt to it and move your feet. Um, 
so the backdrop right now, I think, is is not as positive as it was during those. So the, basically, the probabilities of those those scenarios happening um, or those theses manifesting is has come down significantly. So it's all probabilities game, and I think you need to be careful um, if the probabilities start to not shift in your favor. Don't force something that that doesn't favor mm-hmm. um, that's not in your favor. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, I have a question, which is um, you, it sounds like you think it's just a overbought space. Maybe, if not technically, um, then just in, in terms of. It's, you know, everyone knows about it. The easy money has already been made, at least for the short term. Could you uh, contrast that with just, you know, you, before this interview, you kindly sent me your October note um, for Pervali, and you said that um, it's become even more evident, evident to us that the new monetary regime is increasingly positive for Bitcoin. Could you describe that logic? Is it basically that central banks are going to print uh, so much money and it's not going to be able to get in the real economy? So a lot of it is just going to sort of sizzle off and go into assets that are stores of value like gold and, and Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. I think ultimately back to sort of what the Fed what the Fed was talking what the Fed's trying to do, at the end of the day, they're trying to get real rates lower. That is their goal to allow, you know, sound monetary policy and you know flow of credit and um, have corporations be able to finance it at on a on a real basis at very low rates. Um if that is ultimately their goal, then they're going to do everything they can to try to get real rates lower. And we know that real rates correlate very well with gold, unbelievably gold. And the thesis and I overall idea also correlates with Bitcoin. However, Bitcoin's a much smaller asset class and has a lot more runway versus gold, which is, you know, a 10, $11 trillion asset class that's already more established. So Bitcoin could, in relative deviations to call it real rates, could have much more upside or deviations exactly what's going on now. But the thesis and sort of idea is they're going, we're going to get the monetary policy is going to get even more crazy um, because now you're not able to lower. I think we're going to have one more sort of upturn with with the lowering of rates. And then after that, maybe they hike, probably not. I don't think they're going to hike for a while. And if they don't hike and then we have another slowdown again, then they're not able to cut rates, which then means they have to get crazy with monetary policy. If they have to get crazy with monetary policy, then real they're probably going to do something pretty crazy, which caused which is very bullish for something that is a hard. It's effectively a hard asset. There's only so many so much supply of it um, versus financial assets, which uh, so Bitcoin versus hard assets. I think do or Bitcoin versus financial assets. I think does amazing. And then as the Fed gets more crazy, I think it will do very well in those environments. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I I think uh, when you have a fixed asset that's denominated in an asset that increases every day, um, I I think most people can sort of wrap their head around that argument. I I just have one question about monetary policy. Um, Throughout this year, in response to the uh, COVID pandemic and the uh, corresponding economic um, shock, um, the Fed has been uh, buying a lot of mortgage-backed securities as well mm. as um, treasuries. Um, that has sort of been the lifeblood that has fueled this rally, in, in my view. But the thing that has got the headlines has actually been things like um, PPP, the municipal you know, uh, uh, credit line, uh, commercial credit uh, liquidity facility, sort of these emergency lending programs that the Fed initiated in March and April. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, they haven't been been used that much. I think about twenty to thirty billion um, of all these programs have actually been used, which is a lot of money, um, but not in comparison to sort of you know the five hundred billion dollars of repo that the Fed um, sells every day. Not that there there actually is any uptake on the repo. But I want to ask your question on uh, two things. Number one is that these emergency uh, lending programs are likely to not be rolled over. Um, mm-hmm. It will end on December thirty first. I think all eight of them. Actually, eight of the nine of them will uh, not be um, renewed, and they will end on just the end of the year. Um, even though they haven't injected liquidity into the market, um, has there been a psychological benefit that you know? You saw the headlines 
oh, the, the Fed is going to buy high yield bonds, high yield ETFs. They haven't actually really had to pull the trigger. They've only bought you know a, a few billion here, a few billion there. It's been the psychological benefit that the Fed mm-hmm. is going to have their back. Um, yeah. Going forward, if the Fed doesn't have their back, uh, what what do you think that will pretend for uh, credit markets? Yeah, well, I think I think getting it if it rolls off, you then need to reappropriate the funds. Get reappropriated. You didn't need to basically pass through Congress more funds for those programs. And now that the you know House and Senate split, uh, it, it makes it more difficult for potentially to put put the, these programs back on, which I think is a good thing. I mean, the the programs themselves weren't even used. Right to your point. Um, it's, it's very psychological that the feds, there sort of supporting your back. Um, and what's going on in the credit space is just absolute bananas and bonkers, which is why you see financial conditions at the, you know, the best levels that they've ever been historically. So, you know, thinking in risk reward every day, right. The risk reward there is very, very poor, um, where you have the currently the best financial conditions ever. If today is the best ever, how do we get, where do we go from here? Right. So the fact that they rolled that off, I think is uh, in relation to the credit markets and credit spreads, I think is sort of interesting. And they, uh, they can't really have the backs now unless it gets passed by Congress to source additional funds for those programs after the end of this year, which could potentially have some psychological effect um, in effect on the credit market. So I think I think the risk reward for credit spreads, even though I think the economy is going to pick up, I think the risk reward is higher, or meaning I think credit spreads are likely to go higher, um, which means financial conditions weaken, which means multiples weaken. Mm. So we're just we're in a, we're in a situation where you have an unbelievable, you have some of the best, the best, you know, unbelievable unprecedented liquidity that's sort of starting to fade, best financial conditions ever, lowest credit spreads. I've seen it in a while. Um, you know, it's just a it's just a poor sort of setup for for risk assets, which is also why I think commodities and these other parts of the world um, that don't have a huge technology exposure uh, will likely do much better on a relative basis. Okay, interesting. You said it's a poor backdrop for risk assets, so bad for bonds, um, high yield. Uh, I, I yeah, that's probably the poor way to phrase it. I think on my part, um, I think it's meaning. The it's the best possible. So if right now is the best we've seen in terms of financial conditions, how can we get, you know, how can you improve for that? Right. The risk seems that that it would then be financial conditions would worsen, which means multiples would would be compressed. Right. Okay. Um, so I think um, I've gotten a very good sense of your views, your theses going forward, both on the two to three month horizon, as well as the you know one to two years, as well even ten years. Um, I think what I want to know now is how do you trade those views? You know, I was going through your uh, funds prospectus um, per Valley Global, and uh, obviously I can't disclose anything on, you know on, on camera, but I've, it seems like um, you you are actually net short equities, and then you have a little bit of an allocation into bonds, um, into currencies, and then into commodities as well. So I, I just want to delve into that. Um, when, when you were short equities, I guess, uh, number one, do you, do you buy uh, put options on them? Or do you sort of do a pure short where you borrow them and, and sell them? And then how do you go about managing positions as well as the correlations? Like, can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So overall, you know, I think the risk reward um, to the net equity is primarily negative tech versus positive on the more cyclical areas of the market. So I think being net short, we'll call it, you know, say it's two units short of tech versus one unit long of cyclical. Um, and recently that started to work out. Um, yeah, it has. So you could put on one unit um, of, uh, for example, energy, um, and it could go up 3x while, you know, tech only goes up one X and you make the spread. Um, I think on the sick, on, on, on the equity side of thing, I think it's just a, I don't know, for me, one, you need to, uh, look at the more cyclical parts of the market, but two, I think overall from a risk perspective, I think the next few months are just, uh, sort of a no touch and, and, and sort of, uh, 
be cautious. Um, and then next year it's very clear that we'll likely have a cyclical rebound. Um, right. And what that means for the market is, is going to be a little more tricky. I think the areas you want to be looking at areas of the world that do well during a cyclical upturn. Um, I think bonds probably become an over underweight, um, big underweight, likely short. Um, and sorry, when you say bonds, now to talking, next year. Sorry, when you say bonds, you're talking treasuries, uh, U.S. ten years, sovereigns, yep. investment grade, U.S. U.S. ten years. Okay, okay. U.S. ten years, and the, yeah, the bond exposure that we've had was primarily been emerging market local currency bonds, um, which you get exposure to the currency from. Um, but you know the way uh, we're pretty active, so we'll take a core view, call it for the intermediate term, um, and then trade around that view. So sizing up, sizing down, different sort of ideas. But everything I just said, I could, other than the long-term stuff, I could change my mind, you know, tomorrow and have something totally different. So don't look at that and think of that like a like we should go out and do that. I got you. And I've got a question: how how in the weeds do you go? Like, let's say we say, okay, short two units of tech, long one energy. Are you shorting the Fang? Are you shorting the Zooms and the Snowflakes? Like, yeah. How- uh, not, but you know, how uh, high of a price to book multiple or price to sales multiple are you, are you aiming for? Yeah, it could be anything. So we've had on and are currently looking at uh, like Latin America versus non-profitable tech. So those are the, the zooms of the world. Um, you know, the, the the things that have really run um, that likely do not that definitely do not do well during a cyclical upturn that everyone is currently crowded in. Um, the fangs, cues, the futures, um, you know, anything with a ticker effectively uh-huh. um, on the tech side. Um, we've sort of, you know, taken a look at or thought about. I, I like that. And then my uh, corresponding question is about energy and these sort of distressed sectors mm-hmm. like, you know, mm-hmm. energy, commercial real estate, cruise liners, airlines. Um, you know, one thesis that I've had is that if things get really bad, um, a lot of these companies could go out of business, but that actually could be really good for the dominant player in the space, the people with the strongest balance sheets. So mm-hmm. my question is, uh, what, you know, are, are you invest, are you allocating capital across um, companies throughout this? Are you, are you, you know, investing company in the more distressed companies or are you aiming to find those ones with the best balance sheets, even if they are, you know, priced uh, more richly? Yeah, so we probably, look less at individual companies and more of sort of uh, sectors. So, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know, much more of the ETF based stuff unless got we got have it. like a real high conviction. I think within, I don't know as much about the distressed areas such as uh, the cruise lines or, or the airlines. Airlines are sort of in- intriguing, but um, energy, for example, we've done some work on, I just think it, it was washed out. Everyone, you know, on a Biden win, you know, energy was going to go away. Energy will always be around. We're never going to be able to fly an airplane electric, um, with it, we're never going to have an electric airplane, um, or be able to, you know, drive a electric car to the top of a mountain. Um, so, you know, this is a sector that's that's not going away. That is necessary that we need. And interestingly, the supply de- demand dynamics for 2021, 2022, I think, are unbelievable. Probably the best that they've been. Um, if, if you look at, I'll send you this chart. Um, if you look at uh, capex of EMPs, um, basically the uh, capex the EMPs relative to to their total assets, it's been dismal. So there's been effectively minimal new projects coming on, which leads to crude returns by about two years. So the forward returns of crude are unbelievable. The demand side, you're looking marginally down on the gasoline side, um, marginally down on the diesel side. Jet fuel has gotten crushed, but now that you have a vaccine, if jet fuel comes back on the supply side, we're now looking at really negative supply coming forward, but also inventories are back sort of in their historical average. So if you have any pickup on the demand side, you get start getting huge draws, which then creates this, the supply demand dynamic for the energy sector next year in 2022, I think is phenomenal. And the, the stocks have been completely bonded out. No one owns it. Um, right. So it's like, like I was talking about before, it's a $6 billion, uh, $600 billion market cap between the Russell and S&P. And you're looking at 24 trillion for all of this deflationary lower real rate bets. Any type of rotation out of that needs to find somewhere to go. Um, likely not going to be bonds. Um, and it's coming out of tech, maybe commodities, but these cyclical beat up sectors that everyone hates, no one wants to talk about. Honestly, it was sort of a, 
they went down every day. So it became a point where if you owned it, you know, it was performance risk or almost business risk at a point. Um, and I think that capitulation the other day, and then with the vaccine is, is created a positive tailwind for the space. It's moved really far, really fast. So, you know, maybe the near terms may might today might not be the best place to, to enter, but over the next year, year and a half, I think energy relative to tech is going to do very well, uh, given the pickup and global growth that we see, the supply demand dynamics, and just positioning that everyone currently hates it. Interesting. Um, could you could you give us any tickers? Is it uh, XLE or XOP? Yeah, or? Any, anything with, um, yeah, XLE, um, IXC is the international one. With that, you also get um, one, you have less tax risk exposure. So if there's a change in the tax structure in the U S mm. you're not, you're less exposed to that. It's, um, primarily international. There are some U S companies. Um, you also get dollar negative dollar exposure over the long term, So that's also could be a positive benefit. So IXC is another one. Um, but again, they've, they moved really far, really fast. So, um, we'll see what happens over the next few months, but they still but could have term, some, some room to run, run. Cause they're still well below where they were in Correct. Right, right. It depends on your time frame. So whatever your time frame is, if your time frame is two years, then I think they're they're interesting. If your time frame is two to three months, the less interesting. Okay. Um, I'm looking at your asset allocation. I know this is months earlier, but you've got a, a healthy size in commodities. Now I assume that when you own an energy stock, that would count as an equity. So when you own yes. a commodity, is is that Bitcoin or you're owning GLD? What what is that? Yeah, it could be uh, any commodity. So it could be sugar, uh, it could be um, crude, it could be gold, silver, um, that type of thing. Uh, it could be you know silver miners, gold miners. That would fit in that bucket. Okay, got you. But you're you're you feel uh, not super confident about gold, silver miners in the short term. Would you say your highest conviction trade um, is this energy trade that you talked about? Highest conviction trade. That's interesting. Um, I think highest conviction trades probably higher real rates. Okay. Um, so you have to put me to a time frame, right? So if it's the next week, no clue. Next month, two months. I think next over the next year, I think higher real rates is probably the higher conviction trade. I understand. Well, um, Teddy Valet, um, thank you so much um, for your time today. I've really enjoyed um, speaking with you. Awesome. Thanks, Jack. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.